to today's episode on Walking the Talk on Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. This topic is at the heart of many challenges facing people today, as well as organizations and our world as a whole. Diversity comes in many forms, ranging from the color of our skin, to our gender identity, through to our age, and even neurodiversity. So I invited a very special guest, Julie Carignan, who is someone I truly admire as an inspirational organizational psychologist. Julie is based in Montreal, Quebec, and I now work with her as a partner with a company called Humans, which acquired my work evolution and leadership success group practices. So I am just delighted to get to work alongside such an inspirational leader. Julie brings cutting edge expertise on leadership and team development through strategic thinking, as well as helping organizations have healthy and sustainable results. She holds two master's degrees in organizational psychology. Wow, Julie. And she has over 25 years of experience working across sectors with all kinds of organizations, leveraging human potential and building strong, cohesive cultures. Julie was involved earlier in her career doing research on leadership diversity, and throughout her career, she has helped organizations become more inclusive. Julie is a sought-after keynote speaker and collaborates with numerous media outlets coast to coast. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. I am going to ask you to share a little bit more about who you are and what you're, you do and what you're most passionate about in your work and in your life. Wow, that's, I could spend hours answering that question because so many things uh, I'm passionate about, but if I summarize it well, it would be really helping people make a difference in individual and organizational lives, um, in helping people and teams and organizations reach their full potential through capitalizing on how to uh, leverage human talent and potential in a healthy and sustainable way. So, so that, that really summarizes it. And it was uh, throughout my life, like I started at 16 years old, I was already a professional uh, sports trainer. And so my passion was to take you know, these kids where they were and bring them up to their full potential. And now today I'm doing the same thing with executives, uh, helping them uh, achieve their objectives uh, in a healthy way, uh, their personal ones and their organizational ones as well. So this is really my passion, helping people achieve their full potential. Excellent. And I understand you have a husband and three kids. Can you tell me a little bit about your family? Yes. Uh, I mean, for me, family is a big part of my life and family and work is it's all integrated and it's the same passion again I my three kids are now grown up my youngest is 16 uh, he has his own unique path he's part of uh, the field of neurodiversity he has a uh, he, he's uh, within the uh, autism spectrum uh, uh, spectrum, so uh, so it's really his unique path. My second kid, uh, my second uh, Marjorie, my daughter, is an international athlete, so she's aiming for the next Olympics. So she has quite a unique path as well. And my oldest 
uh, Jérôme is uh, right now at university uh, sharing the same passion of helping people grow through education. So he, he wants to become a high school teacher. That is awesome. Wow, what a beautiful family. And what sport does your daughter compete in that she's headed to the Olympics for? Yes, she's an ice dance. So she was the junior world champion in uh, 2019. And that, that was the first time since uh, more than 13 years that Canada was winning the world title in junior. The last time and the only time, because it was only twice in history, it was Tessa to Scott Meyer. So if people follow a bit of a, a figure skating and ice dance, you must know them. So so they kind of made history their, their own way this way, breaking uh, three three word records as they won their title. And uh, last year was their first senior season uh, with the disruption, disruption we know with the pandemic. So they, they had a challenging year. They were selected. They, they became uh, Canadian vice champions at their first senior year and uh, were selected to do Worlds that was supposed to be at the Bell Centre in Montreal. So we, we were all going to cheer for them in our own city. It was cancelled, of course, for the pandemic. Now they're preparing for officially what would have been their second Worlds uh, in Sweden. It's officially still taking place in March, but who knows? So, so yes, it's, a, it's an amazing path she's following she's passionate about what she's doing and she's giving it her best with her partner so it's so much fun to watch oh that is so exciting we could spend the whole time talking about that it's so fascinating <laughs> but maybe you can interview her at one point <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> i think i will do that so turning our attention to the topic of equity diversity and inclusion what do we mean by this julie and why are each of those three words important yeah yeah, it's, it's very important to position the topic because there's so much happening right now in this field. So if I really want to give a, a clear definition of it, of each, equity refers to a feeling uh, or perception of fairness with regard to a, to a given situation. And equity is so important. We Sometimes we take it for granted, uh, but there's really historic disadvantage uh, between groups. Uh, so equity is a goal that's really hard to achieve uh, in society, in organizations as well. Uh, so this is something that we really need to aim for, uh, again, within organizations and more globally society. Diversity refers to, uh, to really a group of individuals who differ in their identity. So, so you can differ in uh, geographic, cultural, religious uh, origin, age, sex, gender, sexual orientation, academic discipline, even personality. So diversity is so wide. There's so many ways to be diverse. Again, like my youngest son, neurodiversity is, a, is another area where we can be diverse. So, so diverse, diversity really refers to uh, to, to all of the great spectrum of different identities uh, we may have, like it's the different colors of human being, not literal necessarily color, but all of the uh, philosophical uh, differences we can find. And inclusion means really taking steps 
to establish an environment in which diversity is respected, that everyone feels welcome, included. So, so when we combine the three, and it's very important because there's a difference between the three, equity is about you know having equal chances, uh, feeling that we're treated fairly no matter our identity so so no matter our belonging to a specific diversity group and that we feel included so so really i think that the three should always go together there's a little nuance uh, in between but it's when we it's when all of them happen at once that we that we feel that it works you know and that everyone feels welcome and treated fairly well put and i I really, I think it's about walking the talk, right? And I think this conversation has come a long way, but I think it has a long way to go. But I'm curious what you think over your 25-year career, how you've seen this conversation change and what more needs to happen in organizations and society. Yeah, the good thing is that this type of conversation has always happened. Uh, when I was doing my first master's thesis, uh, I had the opportunity to be part of a research group on women in leadership roles, and we were already talking about the glass ceiling. It's not solved yet. There, there are still great challenges for women to 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 feel there's equity and to feel they're included in the in the small circles of uh, decision making, uh, especially at the highest levels or in boards, for example. So there's still a lot of room uh, to grow, to get better, but there has always been conversation. I think that what makes a big difference today is the the scope of the conversation. It used to be, you know, more smaller research groups or a small subgroup of people interested in a specific diversity. So you had people working on women and leadership, other people working on cultural diversity. I gave a lot of uh, <laughs> keynote speaking on also generational uh, diversity. So talking about age, try trying at the beginning of my, my career, trying to help uh, some baby boomers better understand the new generations and vice versa so that we create an inclusive workplace for all generations. So, so there were specific topics discussed in specific groups. Now it's much more global. There's a much better understanding of the wide variety of diversity. It's not just about women. It's not just about age. It's not just about culture. So uh, much more consciousness about the wide diversity of diversity and also uh, with the social media. And um, so there's much more public awareness and it's not just a question that interests some specific target group of researchers. Now, uh, I have the feeling that more and more people, uh, everyone is more aware of the challenges of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Again, thanks to social media, I know uh, some bad things happen in social media, but there's there's this awareness that it brought, and it brought the topic, you know, uh, at the front end, and and this is really a, a benefit. There, unfortunately, a lot of it comes from unacceptable incidents that shocked people. Uh, so, so unfortunately, sometimes the root is from a 
unacceptable behaviors, but if it shed, sheds light to the need to change, to the need to get involved uh, also for members of majority groups to help uh, creating a more equitable, diverse and inclusive uh, again, workplaces and society in general. I, I think that the evolution is there, but uh, the one thing that hasn't changed is that we're not there yet and we can't sit down on equity, diversity and inclusion and say, now it's done. You know, it will never be done. It, it, it will always be a struggle. There will always be some challenges because unconscious biases are unconscious. So even without intentions, sometimes we include, we exclude even without intentions, sometimes we discriminate. So, so it needs to stay you know, a, a conversation, and not only a conversation, but we need to take concrete actions. Wow. And, and speaking about concrete actions, what actions are humans or humans en français uh, taking to help organizations and leaders do something about this and treat uh, equity, yes, diversity uh, and inclusion as a must, not a nice to have? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. Right, right from the start. Uh, again, I remember one of my first interventions at Humans, who was called SPB at the time, uh, was helping a financial organization uh, help their female leaders break the glass ceilings because there was a lot of female in the first level management positions, but they weren't they weren't able to reach the executive level, and we helped them understand why talked to the women, surveyed, so used our research and the combination of research approach and field experience to, to gain a better understanding of what was going on and what we could do concretely to make a difference. And, and so, and it's so uh, fulfilling when we, when we realize that after mandates like that, we do make a difference and we see the numbers, the percentages uh, of women grow uh, in executive leadership position. Again, although we're not fully there yet. Uh, so, so right from the beginning, we at Humans, we conducted mandates helping organization gain a better understanding of their own organizational dynamics and the levers that could help inclusion and create inclusive leadership and also the roadblocks, how to manage the roadblocks and make a significant difference. So, so we've initiated a lot of uh, mandates like that. Starting last year, we started a partnership with a research group, uh, academics specialized in equity, diversity, and inclusion uh, from uh, University Laval in Quebec City. And we built a virtual pathway to help people gain consciousness. And we use our expertise in micro learning and really generating concrete behavioral changes uh, through this virtual pathway to create a more inclusive mindset in people. Because, you know, attending a, a one hour conference on the topic or reading one article on the topic won't make a change. So we really have the ambition to actually create create the behavioral changes we, we need to create uh, through tools like that, uh, you know, a, a pathway that's just more than just a one shot, you know, where people are exposed to not only definition of what is equity, diversity and inclusion, but also tools uh, to, to potentially gain awareness 
and manage their un unconscious biases, their microaggression, they, they, they conduct even without knowing it. So gaining awareness and making sure we equip them in becoming inclusive leadership. It takes courage uh, to be an inclusive leader. And uh, yeah, we're, we're very happy to be able to help a lot of leaders develop these skills that will make a difference. That's amazing. And I, I think you're right. It, it does take courage. And I think a lot of us, I mean, me included, sometimes we're worried about saying the wrong thing, right? So it's we try yeah. not to even bring it up because we're worried about the wrong thing. And I guess my question for you is, how does this virtual path work for a leader compared to taking a course on this topic? Yeah, well, first of all, it works with, you know, the right dose of awareness at the right moment with the right timing. That's that's what micro learning is all about. You know, the human brain, it's really based on neurosciences on how we learn. And you won't stop smoking by reading an article on how bad smoke is for you because it's an ingrained habit. So in terms of equity, diversity and inclusion, it's kind of the same thing. It's not only knowledge you're missing. So it's not by just reading an article or attending a course that will give you great theory and, and, and very precise definitions that you'll make a change because there are ingrained habits we need to change in, in the way we speak, in the way we behave, even in our management practices and processes. And in order to change a habit, it takes time. It takes consistency, frequency, coherence, recognition, consequences, commitment. So this is what uh, the type of virtual pathways we're, we're building, this is what they're all about. It's not just about learning, it's about changing habits and developing, again, uh, switching habits because you, you don't only need to change uh, the dysfunctional habits, but also to build and create new habits in you that are more inclusive, uh, that are more welcome, welcoming to diversity. And again, so, so we work on behaviors, habits, mindsets, and also processes and practices all at once in an integrated blended learning approach. Excellent. And in my experience, um, people tend to have more limited definitions of what diversity is, but you mentioned neurodiversity. Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about that? Because I think it's not talked about very much in the diversity conversation. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. yeah, you have a good point. I think it's not talked about enough. Of course, I was uh, kind of uh, I fell into uh, the neurodiversity area from my very personal experience, having a son uh, on the autism spectrum. So, um, and realizing that, again, it is seen so often as, you know, just a handicap. We only see... Um, the roadblocks, we only see what they cannot do, but they can do things we cannot do. They have unique talents very often. And again, the spectrum is so wide. So I'm being sensitive to people saying, yeah, well, okay, maybe your, your son has unique talents in a certain area. Mine, you know, doesn't even speak and all that. So I'm very sensitive of, yeah, how wide the spectrum 
as and that's only one specific neurodiversity area being autism there are so many uh, so so I kind of this is not an expertise I developed as a professional but more as a mom and uh, being involved in different types of therapies and approach and how we were seeing um, these human beings as uh, just a flaw in what they can do where they have so much to offer uh, professionally as an employer has human beings as well. I've learned and grown so much uh, from this personal experience that it kind of became a personal passion. And over over the years as well, I realized I was even myself part of uh, neurodiversity as well, because very often there's a um, genetic basis to, you know, being neurodiverse. And in my case, I was diagnosed as uh, having an attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. Some people challenge it because I I was officially gifted, and sometimes between being gifted and being hyperactive, uh, the brain is. So again, there is so much more to learn and discover about neurodiversity. It's a field where, you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg of what we know. Uh, and again, seeing this myself as, well, this didn't prevent me from doing two masters, you know, and I know a lot of people with attention deficit disorders struggle at school, but it don't struggle learning, they learn differently. And I had the luck of being in a, a, such a supportive family and that allowed me to learn differently. Uh, I needed to be constantly on the move. And I had teachers, professors uh, in my path that acknowledged the fact that I was different. I, uh, yeah, it was hard to, to get, you know, me focused on one single thing at once, but more than the average people, I could multitask <laughs> definitely and have this way of seeing things and the world in a different way that brought uh, some agility and some creativity in my profile. That's part of how my brain functions differently, you know? So, so yeah, so it's more a neurodiversity for me is more a personal uh, passion and professional, but I really need to connect the two because organizations, really would benefit from being more inclusive, understand more the differences and how we can capitalize on the unique talents of uh, everyone on the spectrum of neurodiversity. Again, that's so wide and so unknown right now. Well, thank you for being willing to share that. And in my years of coaching and career counseling, I've really seen a correlation between people with ADD and brilliance in different careers, right? If they can just get a handle on it and use it to their advantage and work around, uh, you know, the, yeah. the challenges. I mean, there are challenges, right? But I've seen so many brilliant, successful people and you're one of them. And I think it's so great that you <laughs> are open about that. Yeah, but, and I really want to emphasize the, the, different, the difference the environment makes how supportive and inclusive and welcoming the environment is. And, and that make a, made a big difference in my life. And that makes a big difference in everyone's life, in every kid's life, in seeing their attention deficit as a flaw, as something they need to overcome versus, well, this brings you unique talents as well. You see things differently. And, and, and again, there are lights and shadows everywhere in there. And I'm not denying the struggles and the, the roadblocks that an attention deficit brings, but let's see the light as well, the 
opportunities and the unique talents and balance all of this. And again, the environment makes a big difference. So how are organizations ready to welcome these unique these unique talents and adapt their approach, their policies, so that neurodiverse people feel welcome and feel feel they can bring their unique talents on the table. Absolutely. So I'm going to turn our attention to a few questions that I tend to ask in all my interviews. And the first one is about how um, Humans has adapted to the pandemic. So how has the organization pivoted in response to, to COVID-19? Because I see COVID-19 as having challenges, of course, but also opportunities. Yeah. Of course, uh, of course, uh, I tend to see opportunities. Uh, <laughs> I have a personal bias uh, on opportunities more than challenges. At the beginning, again, we did like most organizations did. We had to, you know, make sure our people were, were being functional, comfortable and okay working at home. So the first two weeks were, okay, we need to organize this. And are, are you okay? And are you okay? And making sure everyone was okay. Everyone was in good conditions. Everyone was feeling sa safe and functional to optimize well-being. After that, we say, okay. Now <laughs> that we're under control, how can we help? Uh, so it, within, like, we broke our own personal record uh, in building a virtual support pathway to help managers adapt to the COVID situation. So, okay, how did we do it? How can we help managers do it too? So how can we help them manage their own struggle adapting to this situation as managers? How can we help them uh, have the right leadership posture to help the, their team um, adapt to this, the, the context. So, um, you know, increasing the frequency of communications, uh, the, the priority management as well needed to be revisited and realigned much more frequently. So, so giving them concrete tools and tips to adapt to the situation, manage the stress, manage the well-being, and manage the productivity, and also a lot of workload management because people were overwhelmed. I mean, they tried to do like business as usual where there was nothing usual. I mean, you had kids running all around you for some of you, uh, you know, not being comfortable yet at the very beginning on Teams and Zoom and all that. People were exhausted and, and how do you prevent exhaustion and just the cognitive fatigue of being, you know, on Zoom, even people who were working on their computer all the time, it's different to work on a computer and to work with a camera, mic and screen where there's a, an unconscious lag that, that really creates brain fatigue at the end of the day. So, so we decided to say, okay, we managed ourselves first, making sure everyone was okay within humans and then sprinted on how we can help managers. So within weeks, we launched that uh, virtual pathway. And that was good both for our clients and ourselves because the team was so proud. I mean, okay, we're making a difference and we're all working together on a short-term goal. So, so it kind of switched them from there was a pandemic to we have a mission to achieve. So, so that really uh, everyone got involved in that from every practice because we have three main practices at humans a strategy a, a, a talent evaluation and a 
leadership and team development. So, so virtual pathways are usually built by the leadership and team development, but we, we asked our assessment people to, to jump in because they're organizational psychologists. They, they have a lot to talk about regarding stress and how to remain productive. We had our strategy people join in as well. So it was really a common, uh, common mission and that was well so the struggle is uh, was really the uncertainty of you know uh, we make sure our people are okay uh, we've built quickly built custom-made solutions again beyond this virtual pathway we create also 911 coaching so that you know between eight and eight you you, you struggle we have a team that's available to do 911 coaching we created workshops webinars on topics and then we say okay but like are we doing the right thing is it going to be sustainable how long is this going to happen and what's next and uh, created major opportunities our our partnership uh, again we we knew each other already but discussing okay we we have a lot of leaders that currently struggle and question themselves regarding okay how do we work remotely but there, there will be an end to this where people won't want to come back to normal some people liked the the remote work as well and now maybe the after pandemic will be more teleworking than ever and how do we mix you know having teams that work sometimes together someone sometimes remote i mean this has been a topic you had studied for like 13 years or more like i don't remember but i mean you you tom were experts in that and, and it was part of that quest of how can we build that expertise to really help managers with their current context that brought our partnership together. So I, I see this as, you know, thanks to the pandemic, we're now working together to make a difference in helping organizations adapt to remote and distributed work. I feel the same way. I feel like we were there at the right time with the right expertise. And I really want to hear from you in terms of what's been unhealthy about the way that people in society works and, and what needs to change about the way we work as a society. Yeah, well, what has been unhealthy, and again, there are major differences between one organization and the other, but there was this trend of, you know, business is business, our work is our work, and our private life is our private life. The pandemic has helped us really understand because it was kind of visual. We had the kids around us or, or we had, again, people with kids struggles because they had kids running all around. People without family were struggling with feeling isolated. So we realize how our personal life does have an impact on our professional life as well, and that we can't keep both separate. So I think what has been unhealthy is that um, disregard of, you know, uh, private life and personal well-being in some organizations where now it was in your face. I mean, you couldn't disregard it anymore. You had to manage it in order to remain productive and, and, and do something and remain cohesive. So I think that was a big change. But one thing that used to be unhealthy that may have evolved is this area. The other one uh, I would say is um, probably, again, all of the workload management and the priority management, um, 
now we've stretched people to the point that it's going beyond fatigue. People are burning out. People are struggle with well-being. If you see the statistics, again, there are differences in different cities, <laughs> different organizations, uh, but we see trends of, you know, uh, people fe feeling depressed, people feeling anxious, people even being suicidal in some areas. And, and we we need to address that and, and that the organizations recognize that it we cannot just say, well, that belongs to personal life. You know that as an organization, we can do something. We can be more supportive. We can build conditions. So, so I think this is a, this is another area. I still see a lot of unhealthy um, tendency with the pandemic of um, just saying, you know, an excessive workload is part of the deal and it won't change. Uh, some organization have asked us to give workshops on workload management. And, and I like to challenge clients when I don't see success conditions. And when I say, okay, you want us to help your leaders better manage workload. Well, what if the workload is unreasonable? What do, what do we tell them? What are your like acceptable organizational practices to raise the flag? And they say, no, you don't understand. There's no compromise. You know, we can compromise on the objectives. We can compromise on the deadlines, but we need them to cope with it. Okay. So I said, you don't want me to give a workshop on workload management. You want me to give a workshop on how to survive a 70 hour week. And they were like, well, that's not really what we meant when well, so that's that's what I heard you say with different words so, so I love challenging clients saying you know if you really want to address workload how much are you willing to address it at the organizational level and, and what control do you give to people so I'm having a lot of fun right now challenging organizations and I think now it, it, it reached a limit where we can't deny it anymore like I mean the workload in some areas are just so big that yeah, they're losing people to it. People get sick about it uh, because there's the stress of the workload with the stress of adapting to a pandemic and it's just too much. So I think it's a great opportunity to question ourselves saying, okay, we need to work hard. I mean, competition works hard. We're in a competitive market. We need to be productive. We need to reach the highest levels. But, you know, when I introduced myself, we talked about my daughter, like being an international athlete and aiming for Olympics. And there's no athlete that will reach Olympics that don't manage their energy well. You know, uh, overtraining is one of the most popular <laughs> uh, reason for not reaching Olympics in athletes you know uh, you don't reach olympics because you haven't trained enough typically it's because you overtrained and you got injured on the way and this is what makes you miss it so having this you know we understand competition is high we understand you don't want to make compromise on your ultimate goal but what's the best way to reach your goal without having people injured on the way and this is why you know when 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 i talk i, I very often talk about healthy sustainable results because these two words are loaded <laughs> besides results. So it's not being healthy and sustainable instead of achieving results. It's saying, you know, in order to achieve the greatest results, you need to take care of how healthy and sustainable uh, your practices are.
very well put. And I think it comes down to we're all human beings and we we need to be recharged. So I like the term energy management and I like the term work-life wellness. So I always ask this question, how how do you juggle all that you do and what does work-life wellness look for you personally, Julie? Yeah, I told you I was hyperactive. So for me, a balance is... Nothing like sitting on a chair and thinking about anything for hours. So uh, for me, I always perceive, you know, work-life wellness. And I like the term wellness. But I really like the term balance because for me, yet I'm from a dance background. I, I, I was doing a lot of dance and there's nothing static in balance. You know, in order to remain balanced, you need to constantly adjust your ankle muscles and it's micro adjustments. And for me, that's about it, you know, in order to manage work-life balance or work-life well-being, you need to accept to be in constant movement, constant adjustment to this situation and being very anchored in your priorities. Although I'm perceived as someone very professional, professionally successful, I've always been very clear that my priority is my family. And if I have one of my kids that gets sick and all that, and I need to be there, I will be there no matter what. And my clients respect me for that. And I work with clients who will respect that actually. Uh, so, so for me, um, I didn't suffer because I was really grounded in my values and my priorities, I, I see a lot of people suffering in the process because when they invest time in their family, they feel a sense of guilt that they should invest more time in their professional life. And if they're working too much, they feel a sense of guilt of not being there enough for their family. I have this, uh, I'm lucky that I, I don't suffer because I'm really grounded and in my priorities and I feel I have the freedom to choose. And I know that feeling is not something everyone has the privilege to have, but I really gave that to myself saying, you know, I have the freedom to choose. If at one point my work is impeding on how present I wanna be with my family, I will revisit that. And if uh, at one point my family life takes a too much time, I will revisit that, say, okay, maybe I'm too much into it. I need to work on their autonomy or I need help, you know, uh, uh, with the, the taxi, the lunches and all that. And again, family is not just one person. I have the privilege. Again, my husband is highly involved and it's really a teamwork. And beyond my husband and I, we have also support from our parents, our brothers and sisters. So, so, so we have the support to be able to do that. So what I would say is, again, being grounded in my own values and priorities has always made it easier for me. It, it's still hard. I mean, sometimes, again, it's because it's I, I, I'm a no compromise person. So sometimes I want to do it all, you know. Uh, of course, I want to be at every competition of my daughter. I want to be there to discuss with my oldest son about, you know, his uh, uh, what, what he's learning uh, in his pathway to become a great teacher. I want to be there uh, for my son when he comes back to school and, you know, was intimated or excluded and doesn't understand why. And I want to welcome this, welcome his emotions and be there to listen and to welcome and to support him. And, and it's a big part of my life. And uh, again, I, 
so so there's no compromise there and and it's all a question of when there's a crisis at work and at home at the same time then it sleeps <laughs> That drops, you know, the nights are a bit shorter, but I'm a sprinter. And again, I say, okay, I can take naps on the weekend. So again, I, I, I constantly adjust on a daily basis. So I welcome the crisis. If there's a crisis on one point, I have crisis on the job. I have a great family support that helps me go through it. Family crisis, I have a great professional support that helps me go through it. And when there's a system, <laughs> systematic crisis both ways, well, I have the energy to say, okay, I need to invest more energy than I should right now, and I'm going to take naps afterwards. So, so this is how I play. Again, I'm for me, although both areas are quite intense, I just love it's like surfing, <laughs> constant movement and adjustment, but being passionate about both sides yes, makes the it word fun. Passion comes to mind with you and resiliency. And when you mentioned shorter nights, what if you didn't have to sleep and you had an extra eight hours a day? What would you do with that time? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, not sleeping wouldn't give me an extra eight hours a day. I'm not sleeping a lot. <laughs> But if I wouldn't sleep at all, I have to say, I would invest more time um, to take a step back and think because strategic thinking has always been one of my strengths. Uh, but sometimes I feel there's so much to do, so much to deliver, so much to be, you know, I need to be with this client making a difference that sometimes what I'm lacking is more quality time to take a step back, write, think, read. So that's what I, I would do more. Again, I, I try to reserve some space for that in my calendar, but if, if I wouldn't have to sleep, I would recharge by reading, by writing, by taking a step back. That's the best way to recharge my battery if I didn't have to sleep. I would love to do that more. Excellent. And my final question, if you had one wish that could be granted for a better world when it comes to work and life, what would it be? Wow. I should have prepared an answer for that. I need to take a step back. I would say, like the, the word that comes to mind is just connect, reconnect constantly with the fact that we're all humans, well-intended humans um, working together for a common goal. Because whenever I, I do in my interventions, a lot of conflict management or climate issues, sometimes, you know, uh, borderline uh, psychological harassment. And very often my conclusion is we kind of forgot the basics of at, at the very beginning, we're all well-intended human beings that interpreted each other wrongly or that, you know, injected wrong inten intentions in, in others where I really truly believe in the fundamental good in human beings. And that very often the dysfunctional and toxic behaviors emerge 
not from not being good at the start, but from a need to protect or from fear. And when you approach people with this perception of we're all good, we're all well-intentioned, what I have in front of me is not a bad human being. It's a human being that has fears or that feels the need to protect oneself. It changes everything. So just giving ourselves each other, giving each other the benefit of the doubt and just anchored in a strong belief that human beings are good. So well put. Is it too physical? <laughs> that, that optimism we need more of in society. So that is a great way to conclude. I've learned so much just by hearing you speak, uh, Julie, and your examples. And what really stood out to me was it's about when it comes to equity, diversity, and inclusion, it's about changing our behaviors and forming habits, right? Which comes from, you know, experiencing and, and learning on the job and integrating habits into our workplaces and our lives. And I know that we, um, as humans or humans can uh, make a big difference there. And I'm really proud to be working with you. And thank you so much for sharing honestly about your own neurodiversity in your family and some of the, the challenges there, but also more importantly, the many opportunities that it's brought. So thank you for being yeah. an optimistic human being um, and your contributions to the world, Julie. Good. And thank you, Lara, for for this uh, inspiring interview. Uh, and again, so happy to have you as a partner as well. So thanks for everything. It is my pleasure. Stay well. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Where Work Meets Life. I'm passionate about sharing insights from experts around the world on topics at the intersection of where work meets life. If you found this podcast useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. For more articles, information, and tips, sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, drlaura.live. This podcast summary contains links to the psychology practice I founded. Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology, as well as my current employer, Humans, a nationwide organizational psychology firm focusing on culture and performance. Stay well.